It is good to see you all this morning, and a little while ago you may have caught the uh, little side light show we had going on uh, over here, and it reminds me of, uh, you know, October is, as we have clearly heard from Scott, it is uh, physical therapist month. And so we want to make sure we honor our physical therapists among us, Scott being one of them. Uh, but as we, as we reflect on the ministry, on a more serious note, it is Pastor Appreciation Month, and I do want to take a moment during this month to say that there are those who serve behind the background that you don't see that make it possible for you to participate in, to uh, take joy in, and to worship the Lord corporately together through because of their ministry. And so you don't see them, uh, but when you see little things happening and you see them working to try to resolve them, be mindful of their hard work because there is nothing more nerve-wracking than to be the one sitting in the booth and something's not working up front. Uh, that is a difficult task for them to be in, and I praise the Lord for each and every one who faithfully serve in that role and capacity. And so we want to make sure that during this month as well, you praise the Lord for them. Make sure you let them know as well, uh, as they have worked diligently on your behalf, so that you are able to join together and worship together, using their gifts for that purpose. We praise the Lord for that. Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and as you're turning there... I will be preparing to move us into 1 Thessalonians, but there are a couple things that I want to prepare you for and to briefly discuss. I have, over the last couple of weeks, been sharing with you that what we see going on in Israel is a matter of grave concern for us. We should be those who are praying diligently on behalf of those who are in this now war-torn area, and it is a land that is very near and dear to my heart. And so we pray for the people who are desperately in need of the gospel message that through these events that we're seeing today, the gospel would permeate and sink in to hearts that have been blinded from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, I also want to urge us to exercise some caution to not be sensationalists, but to be biblicists. Let's be those who study the word of God and boldly proclaim that could this be the end of the time? Certainly it could be. But it does not necessarily have to be. Do we see the battle of Gog and Magog perhaps rumbling in the background? Certainly, because Scripture speaks of those things. However, does it have to happen today? And I would say and remind you again, no, it does not have to happen in this instance. In fact, there are those within the nation of Israel who have fought against, who are Israelites, who are Jews who have fought against the nation state of Israel because they believe that it was put there by human effort, not by God planned. It's an interesting theology. I don't agree with it, certainly, but it is something that does remind us that we are to keep proper biblical eschatology in its place, and it certainly has one we're going to be talking about this, this morning. As we do that, though, we recognize, too, that should the Lord tarry, we are to be busy about reaching out to the lost for the sake of Christ and making disciples that they may know what Christ has taught them and that they live by it. And so that is our role. We want to be biblicists. We want to be excited about what the Lord is doing in the future, and we know that he will fulfill it. So we're not losing any of that, but let us not be sensationalists, those who run around saying that 
the sky is falling when it is not yet falling. And so let us be those who are bold and careful, wise, and using these moments to cause us to look up and look forward to the next eschatological event, which is the coming of Christ to take his church with him, to be with him in the air. That is the focus of 1 Thessalonians. Long before I knew there was going to be war in Israel over the last couple of weeks, we started the book of 1 Thessalonians, and I praise the Lord for his timing as we are diligent in its study. So we're going to be praying for Israel. Also, Scott mentioned that I will be traveling this next uh, 10 days or so. I will be in Ecuador, and so uh, pray for my flights. I actually pray that my flights arrive there because I'm the keynote speaker for the week, and I start tomorrow. Uh, so my first message is about four hours after I get off the plane tomorrow in uh, Guayaquil. And so be in prayer for me and for the entire uh, Spanish-speaking Latin and South America field conference for biblical ministries worldwide. And so this is the first time they've ever done one like that. So all the missionaries from Mexico all the way down uh, through Chile and uh, all of South America will be gathered there. There'll be 80-some missionaries there. And uh, it will be a blessing. So pray that God's word would penetrate, that they would be encouraged and strengthened because uh, just a couple days ago, you saw the State Department issue travel warnings for Americans anywhere in the world. Uh, Well, I get the opportunity to travel someplace safe, relatively safe, but many of our missionaries that we support here and many missionaries that BMW encourages and strengthens Uh, through that agency, are serving in a place where they don't have the opportunity to just leave. And so be in prayer for them as well. And so a lot to do uh, with this next two weeks. So be in prayer uh, for all the traveling arrangements. I will be speaking starting tomorrow four times. And so be in prayer uh, for the conference as well. As we turn our hearts and attentions to 1 Thessalonians, I am reminded of this uh, very significant statement that one author wrote. He says, If the pursuit of God's glory is not uh, ordered above the pursuit of man's good, in the affections of the heart and the priorities of the church, man will not be well served, and God will not be duly honored. I am mindful as we move into Paul's pastoral prayer in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, I'm reminded of a shepherd who has done his due diligence in putting God's glory first and even at his own sacrifice. There was a time where my parents' field, we have, my parents, when I was growing up, had 80 acres, and uh, during the winter months, the sheep would come down out of the mountains around us in the Colorado, western Colorado area, and they would leave the mountains, they would come down to the valleys, and they would pasture all uh, winter long and into the lambing season in the spring, and then they would go back up to the mountains. I remember this one year in particular that a Chilean, actually, since I mentioned that earlier, a Chilean shepherd had joined the flock, and so the chief shepherd wasn't there. The under-shepherd would be with the flock, and he would pull in this little, somewhat of a rickety camper that could go up into the high passes of Colorado, and it kind of looked like a teepee on wheels is what it kind of looked like, and they would drag that in, and he would live there all winter long. Now, this young man had recently come from Chile and had uh, not been in the United States very long, and he wasn't interested in shepherding. He wasn't interested in being the leader of the sheep. And so you'd see him, he would wander around, and he would notice the sheep in the morning, and then he'd disappear all day long. Gone. Not concerned about anything else. 
that winter, the shepherd, the chief shepherd lost about 15 sheep through predation, through the coyotes that were coming in and taking them, through the ones that got stuck in the sand and in the creek bottom, I've spoken about before, all of those 15 sheep that year. When I talked to the chief shepherd, the owner of the sheep, at the end he goes, I've never had so many sheep die in a single flock. That is the opposite of what this author writes when he says, if the pursuit of God's glory is not ordered above the pursuit of man's good and the affections of the heart and the priorities of the church, man will not be well served. Man, in this case, the chief shepherd and the sheep were not well served, and the chief shepherd was not duly honored in this flock. In other words, your priorities and ambitions are secondary to those of Christ's. And Paul is going to illustrate for us that great truth, and it is important for us to set aside our proclivities to observing and protecting, number one, ourself. What happens, let me ask it this way, what happens when your abilities have reached their end? When you have pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and the door is still shut, do you give up in disgust or do you turn to Christ? Do you say, it's not fair, I've been pushing, I want this, or do you accept that God's plan is perfect? This is where we find Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, where the scripture says this as we begin to close out the chapter. I'm just going to read verses 11 through 13, and then we'll ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word. The scripture says, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we bow our heads before you this morning, thankful that Paul has a heart to see beyond his incapacities, his inabilities to do what his plan is. And then to instead see what you are doing, and in seeing what you're doing, encourage and strengthen and continue to be in prayer for the church at Thessalonica, and therefore us as well as he pens this letter to them. Lord, I pray that you'd give us understanding hearts, give me the words to speak, that they would be from you, that your name would be glorified and exalted in all that we say and do here this morning. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for those who are diligent and serving behind the scenes as... uh, instrumental into our fellowship service to our fellowship and into our services we praise you for them and their work lord we also recognize that what we're hearing out of israel today is devastating news those who have committed terrible atrocities against the people of israel and now the bombings and the terrible atrocities that are happening even within gaza within hamas to their own people Lord, we recognize that there is evil being demonstrated in ways that even surprises those committing the evil. We pray that you would intercede on behalf of the nation of Israel. We ask that you would return for your church and that the tribulation would be kicked off, as we know those are the next eschatological events. But if you should tarry, we praise you that we have the opportunity to see your patience exercised as we continue to be faithful in reaching out to those around us. 
for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Lord, we pray that you would bless now your, our time and your word, that we would be encouraged and strengthened by it, that you would be exalted because of it. And Lord, we love you. We thank you for it. We pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. As we dig into the text before us this morning, I do want us to start here in this idea of being dependent on God. Verse 11, notice what Paul says. He says, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Paul, very early on in this pastoral prayer, in these last few verses of this chapter, is encouraging, strengthening, and imploring the church in Thessalonica to press on. In doing so, there is this shepherding kind of care. He's concerned about the flock at Thessalonica. And so rather than being like the Chilean shepherd that I mentioned a few moments ago, Paul is doing the hard work of shepherding even though he is unable to go to Thessalonica. And there is an attitude that you and I should see exuding out of the pages of the the text before us. Paul ends his personal comments here to the church at Thessalonica in the passage that we have the privilege of studying this morning. These are the latest comments that are motivated by the report that Timothy has brought back to him. So Paul has already started this work. We studied this beginning last week where we saw Timothy report back to Paul, now Paul being in Corinth, having had a struggle in Athens, at least from a human perspective, from an earthly perspective. There was struggle going on in Athens. Paul was by himself in Athens. Now he's come to Corinth. And Timothy now joins him. And Timothy brings with him, in the midst of all of the trials that Paul is struggling with and Corinth, Timothy brings good news of what's going on at Thessalonica. And it's encouraged and strengthened the apostle, and he has praised the Lord for them, and he is going to now pray for them to continue to grow in their love for one another, which was part of his statements last week, and then he's going to build into the second portion of the letter. So really, you could divide the book of Thessalonians right here on this text. What we have before us is a transition from the personal comments to the theology of the book of First Thessalonians. Paul is working into the theology of how all that he said in the first half is to be lived out. These comments are a source of encouragement, those that Timothy had brought, because Paul is discouraged by the constant hindrances that Satan had thrown in front of this mission's team. Paul desperately wanted to be back at Thessalonica. Now, as we move into verse 11, you see a bit of understanding, of resolve, and of committal back to the Lord. Paul says, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Every hindrance that Satan could throw in front of Paul had been thrown in front of Paul, as we studied a few weeks ago in earlier portions of chapter 3. Now Paul has resigned himself to understanding the truth and the wonder that God is still at work, but it's going to be God who's going to clearly open the doors. Have you ever been to that place where you're pretty sure that you're supposed to be moving a certain direction, you've prayed about it, you've asked for wisdom, you've sought after the Lord's direction and, and his insight and his will, and the door just seems shut. Those can be very frustrating times. 
Paul in the midst of that instead of saying, I'm doing everything I can. I've booked, I've booked plane tickets. I've got camel rides. I've got all these things. I'm trying to get to you. Instead of doing that, Paul says, now may God direct our path back to you. There's a resignation of Paul recognizing that his own capacities, his own abilities are insufficient. Paul defines himself as being in a position of having tested every opportunity and finding nothing available. He rests in dependency on the Lord to provide his way. I want us to catch the attitude that is here. There is no pouting. That Paul is not saying, well, I wanted to get there, but I can't. Sorry. There's no desperation. If I don't get there, all of ministry is going to fail. There is simple, humble restraining of his own capacities, his own ambitions for the glory of God. Beloved, have that same attitude in yourselves. Have the attitude of humble dependency upon God's direction. And notice what it leads Paul to do. Instead of looking at Paul, instead of focusing on Paul, Paul begins to appeal to God on behalf of those in Thessalonica. And this is a true pastoral prayer. He is not praying that God would send him so that Paul can fix it. Paul's not designed to fix it. In demonstrating his own inabilities and incapacities, Paul leans on the purposes of an all-powerful God and knows that it's God who's going to be the one who does the work. And so he asks that the Lord would send him back, should the Lord will, to the Thessalonians. Paul speaks of the ministry of the Father and the Son as both participating in Paul's direction. Paul is leaning on the triunity of God, and he is leaning to this point of saying, send me back, I'm praying that the Father and the Son would be involved in sending me back. Notice chapter 1, verse 1. As we go back in the first portion of 1 Thessalonians, notice how Paul addresses the church he says, Paul, Sylvanius, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Paul starts the letter with where he has now resigned himself to be. The church in Thessalonica is not Paul's church. It is easy for us to think of the pastor or think of the especially church planter of a church and say, yeah, that was so-and-so's church. That's not true. It's the Lord's church. And Paul keeps that perspective even when he is unable to push the doors down to get back to Thessalonica. He says, I am praying that the Father and the Son would send me back to you, would direct my path back to you. The importance of this, both the Father and the Son being mentioned, is the power of the triune God at work. And it expresses the role of the Son in the headship of the church. It also stands to remind the believers in Thessalonica and you and I as well of the omniscience of God and his omnipotence, his all-knowing and his all-powerful. 
And it also reminds us of his imminence. His imminence means, or imminence is a word, means that God is not detached from life. Paul recognizes and falls before the Lord who is imminent, who is present. In the church at Thessalonica and the struggles going on in Corinth, as well as in the church in Byron Center. Paul falls on his face in humble dependence on the triune God, and it changes his perspective. If you find yourself in a perspective saying, I've pushed and I've pushed and I've done all this work, and no one's listening to me, and no one's following my direction, and no one's paying any attention, fall on your face in humble submission because God is at work in his church, and it is his church. And so it is not Pastor Chad's church. It's not even the church that Byron Center owns. It's not your church, although you are part of its fellowship. And we pray that the fellowship would increase all the more. But it is not yours to own. And it is vitally important that we understand this truth because it changes every dynamic of our attitude within the fellowship. It's his church. And the power of the triune God has the right to overrule the Apostle Paul. Does he not have the right to overrule you and I? So Paul says that he falls in humble appeal before the Lord. And as he makes his appeal to God, notice how or in what context he makes his appeal. His first appeal is actually that God would direct or strengthen or straighten rather the path. Paul appeals to God the Father and the Son to direct, that's what the ESV has used, to direct or to strengthen, as your translation may use, his path back to the church in Thessalonica. This word direct is an important word for us because in the New Testament, Its usage is only in the context of prayer. It's only in the context of those who are praying. In fact, notice, turn over a book to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, and Paul uses the same word again to the same church. He says this, verse 4, and we have confidence in the Lord about you that you... Uh, that you are doing and will do the things that we have commanded. May the Lord direct your hearts in the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. So now turn back to 1 Thessalonians. Paul has prayed in 2 Thessalonians that God would direct the heart of the Thessalonians. Now in 1 Thessalonians, we come back to chapter 3 and verse 11 and notice that his prayer is that God would direct Paul's path back to the Thessalonians. But both times this word is used to the Thessalonians, and every time it's used in the New Testament, has everything to do with prayer and God being the one directing our path. Paul has resigned himself to cease any human efforts to get back to Thessalonica. But that does not mean that Paul has resigned himself to despair or discouragement or frustration or aggravation. Paul has resigned himself to prayer. 
which is not a bad place to be. That's the right place to be. Paul prays, do not neglect the power and the value of prayer. When closed doors have been put in front of you, don't rail against the door. Fall to your knees in prayer. Ask the Lord to direct your path. Does God answer this prayer? Turn over to the book of Acts. Obviously, yes. If I'm having you turn to a book, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, and we see a similar statement made in 1 Timothy, but I'm going to read Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. The scripture says, and after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone throughout those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months And when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Peter, the Sopater, the Berean, son of Phyrus, accompanied him, and and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, and uh, Sudius, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy and the Asians, Tychius and Trophimus. Did Paul go back to Thessalonica? Most likely he did. Twice. So when Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians that he's trying to get back to Macedonia, that he wants to see the Thessalonians, remember the uh, capital city, the, the star city of Macedonia was Thessalonica. Paul is interested in heading to Philippi and Thessalonica, the two stars of Macedonia. And most likely, and most assuredly, when Paul goes back to Macedonia, he would go and visit those two churches. And the Lord does open up the doors, most likely, to Paul to complete that trip, which is in direct answer to the prayers that Paul prays when he was humanly unable to open the doors. We don't know the details of those events, but can you imagine the joy of Paul as he crests over the mountain ridges that surround Thessalonica, and as he crests over, he sees the lights, or he sees the bustling streets of the city of Thessalonica below him. Do you think Paul's heart was thrilled and praise that God had answered his prayer? I imagine it was, knowing how earnestly Paul had desired to be among them. But Paul then says, I'm praying for this, I'm appealing to God for this, but I'm appealing to God for other things as well. And I'm appealing to the Lord that your love would increase, that the Thessalonians' love would increase for one another. And back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, now verse 12, and he says, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Increasing and abounding. Paul's prayer was that their love would be increasing and abounding. His continued prayer focuses on their spiritual growth. Remember, as he had given praise in the previous section that we had studied last week, he had reminded them that their faith needs to be filled up. 
that there's more work to do. And now Paul has returned to both faith and love, as those have been major themes in both the book of Philippians and now in the book of 1 Thessalonians, where Paul is encouraging them to practice faith and love. Paul, in this moment, as he is encouraging and strengthening them through his written word, is in prayer that they would increase and abound in their love. The church at Thessalonica could not simply increase their output of love. What Paul was asking of the Lord was humanly impossible. It would be humanly impossible for me to tell you, increase and abound in your love for one another. We're told that biblically, but you can't do it. We're told to do something that you are physically and emotionally and spiritually incapable of doing unless you fall humbly before God and let him do it through you. This is God at work. How do I know that? Well, Pastor Mike, in his recent series that he's preached in my absence on Sunday nights, have gone through the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, identifies that one of the fruits of the Spirit is love. You can't agape love one another, or agapo love one another, that is loving as God has loved you, without God moving through you to love one another. This is outside of the human capacity. The church at Thessalonica could not simply increase their output of love for one another. God had to be at work in them. Paul was praying that they would enjoy the work of the Spirit of God in their lives and in their fellowship and increase and abound in their love for one another. The combination of these two words, increase and abound, are likely joined together by Paul for the express purpose of highlighting all that it takes to make up a divine love of God to be dispensed through Christians. Paul doesn't just say, increase in your love. He says, increase and abound. He didn't have to say it both ways, but he ties both terms together. And in tying both terms together, he says that we as Christians must understand the divine love dispensed through us. God's love increasing in us and overflowing out through us. That means we love when others are totally unlovable. That we love one another and others. In fact, notice what Paul says is he says that we are to be responding to one another. He says our love was to be expressed to one another and then more broadly for all. Their example was the demonstration of Paul's love already demonstrated. That was the Spirit's love moving through Paul over the last three chapters of the letter. The love of God increasing and abounding means that the church will have a love for all people as God loves. We've highlighted it, we've mentioned it a couple times already this morning, but turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, and notice the love of God for those outside of the church. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, 
but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is the same love that was demonstrated in John chapter 3, verse 16, where Christ would send his only begotten Son into the world. So God's great love would send the Son of God to pay for the wrath of God that we justly deserved. And in paying for the wrath of God, then when people continue to reject the things of the Lord and the gift of God, God still withholds his wrath to be poured out on them as he's patient towards those who are still not yet repentant. We also see this truth turned back now to 1 Timothy on our way as you're going back to 1 Thessalonians, stop off at 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we'll notice it here as well, chapter 2, verse 4, as we see this love. 1 Timothy 2, 4 says, uh, this, uh, verse 3, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to know the knowledge of the truth. And turn over to chapter 4, verse 10 of 1 Timothy and the scripture there says, For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on a living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So Paul, in his letter to Timothy, says, Let us live in light of God's love for the lost and in light of God's love for the redeemed. Let us be those who have the same mind as Christ has. And let us recognize that the patience of God that we see even while we cry out, Lord, come for your church, is patience because someone else needs to know Christ as Savior. It's not as if we have the opportunity to influence this or to change this, but I've often joked, if we want to hasten the coming of the Lord, we will be better evangelists. We'll be trying to find that last one to come to know Christ as Savior before Christ returns. Now, understand that, humanly speaking, that sounds good. Uh, theologically speaking, that's terrible theology. You're not the one that gets the right to choose who the last one is. But wouldn't it be amazing to be the one who shares Christ with the last one? Let us be those who are diligent, faithful evangelists, reaching out for the sake of Christ so that when the patience of God has been completed, Christ will return. Redemption through the gospel is offered to all people. And the church must demonstrate this kind of love for all people to tell them of redemption. So that is what Paul is praying, that the Thessalonian believers would increase in their love for one another and that it would abound, increasing and abounding to one another and increasing and abounding to those outside of their fellowship. The love that is demonstrated by the church is to be the love that is defined by 1 Thessalonians chapter 13, and, or rather 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And write that passage down, we've been there many times. This is what love is. 1 Corinthians 13, and that is not the love that we reserve for husband and wife. It is the love of a husband to his wife and a wife to her husband, but that is to be exemplified and demonstrated by the church as a whole for one another. This is how we ought to love one another, and Paul prays that their love would be increasing and abounding, and here's why. He prays that they would be complete at Christ's return. 
Notice, as we conclude chapter 3, it says, So that he may establish your hearts, blameless in holiness before our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. This is somewhat an interesting text for us, and it's an important text, as we begin to recognize that Paul is looking ahead to the Bema seat. He's looking ahead to the Bema seat judgment. He says, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. As a as each chapter before and each chapter after, this chapter looks to the future. And it actually ends that way. Others end that way as well, but not all at the end of the chapter is there a look towards the future. But every chapter looks to the second coming of Christ, to the coming of Christ. Paul prays for the believers to be holy and blameless. And he connects that with the when. When are we to be holy and blameless? If you pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly, let us be those who also pray, Lord, purify us. Cause us to abound in love and to increase in our love. Because we should be those who understand that the when is at the coming of Christ. When are we to be this way? At the coming of Christ. And we don't determine when that is. And it will be Christ who does that work, we understand, as he will present to himself from Ephesians chapter 5, he will present to himself a bride who is blameless and spotless in every way. But we know that there is a time that is to come, that is very soon, in the scope of eternity, that we will be removed And the efforts of sanctification that we add to progressive sanctification will be concluded. Before we discuss the judgment in mind that Paul has in mind, notice the clear connection to fostering the fruit of the Spirit so that the love of God would increase and abound in our lives. We should be those in humble submission that God's love flows through us so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. Paul doesn't take a breath. I took a breath. Paul did not. He says, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. Paul didn't separate it by verse numbers. We separated it by verse numbers. But recognize Paul is writing it out and he's saying, I want your love to abound and increase and that is God at work through you so that when Christ returns, you're ready. You're ready. Many within dispensational evangelicalism and fundamentalism have always cried out for the coming of Christ and some have been those who have neglected their own work in being prepared. Are you prepared? Are you ready? If your love is not increasing and abounding, the answer is no. 
If you're not loving beyond your capacities and your human frailties and experiences, then the answer is no. But history will not wait for you. Paul says in his prayer, in his pastoral prayer, get ready. This is written to believers, written to those who know Christ as Savior. So there's a responsibility for salvation. Paul's already addressed that with the Thessalonians by reaching them for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now he says, those who know Christ as Savior, be ready. Be ready. And in order to be ready, you're not practicing your jumps up and down to see how high you can get. Because the problem is, as you age, you get lower. This is not a win-win situation. But this is, are you loving more? Are you allowing the love of God to increase and abound in you all the more? Or do you have all kinds of reasons to grumble and complain? Obediently submitting to the Spirit of God in these and all areas of the Christian life are necessary for us to be blameless and holy. The timing of Christ's return and the presentation of believers before the judgment seat provides us with the context, understanding that when Paul is writing this in verse 13, he says, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. This phrase reminds us that Paul has something else in mind. This is not just we're going to be raptured and immediately taken before the presence of the Lord. There's more to it. That's great and wonderful truth. That is true, but there's more to it. There's more that will take place, and it's part of the bride being made blameless and spotless. Turn over to 2 Corinthians for just a moment, chapter 5, verse 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. By the way, Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 3 as well, but it's not defined as this. That's just what it'll look like. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, we get some clarity as to what it will actually be. The Scripture says... In this place, in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat, the bema seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ of this age, you will stand before God at the bema seat judgments. At the bema seat judgment, it is not, are you going to heaven or not? That is the great white throne judgment to come at the end of the ages. That, that will come. That will be as those are cast who follow after the things of Satan and Satan and the false prophet have already been thrown into the lake of fire by the time of the great white throne judgment. That judgment is coming later. What Paul is talking about here is when the church is raptured, the church will stand before its Savior at the Bema Seat. And 1 Corinthians 3 tells us how that judgment will go. Did you earn... After the coming to know Christ as Savior, was your wages wood, hay, or stubble, or precious stones, or gold, or silver? If it's precious stones, gold, and silver, it will stand the testing of the judgment and will be offered back in praise and sacrifice to the Lord. But if it was wood, hay, and stubble, you may have a mountain of things that you've done. And when touched with a torch, it's reduced to ash. Paul says back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God 
and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. Beloved, it matters what you do after you come to know Christ as Savior. And it matters the quality in which you do it. And one of those areas that will be judged, Paul just gave us, is your love abounding and increasing. Are you allowing the Spirit of God to work through you, or do you demand control of what the Spirit does? Paul is concerned for the believer's holiness. Paul writes in First Peter, or rather Peter writes in First Peter 1, verses 15 and 16, he says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God is concerned, whether it's in Leviticus, where Peter is quoting from, or in the book of First Peter, God is concerned about your holiness. He's concerned about your purity. Paul prays that in the life of the believers in Thessalonica, they would be blameless. That is, that there's no grounds for accusation towards unholiness. In other words, when you have been brought to the light and your holiness is tested against real holiness, is there an accusation of unholiness in you? If there is, confess those things before the Lord. As we studied last Sunday night, we have a great high priest who's of an order higher than the Arianic priesthood. And you have access as a believer in Jesus to Jesus, who is your high priest. Let us be those who are passionate as God is passionate about our holiness. This is not a facade of piety. This is not a, I'm going to live in a monastery someplace and wear drab robes and never show my face and, and live a poor lifestyle because God wants me to live a poor lifestyle. That is not what Paul has called us to. This is an active lifestyle where you're interacting with one another in the body of Christ and you're trying to outdo one another in your love for each other and you're doing it far beyond your capacities. Because you want God to work through you. And we're doing that with an eye towards tomorrow. The coming of Christ. The mention of the coming of Christ is the second of four times that this event is mentioned in the letter. So let me say that again. This is the second of four times. We're through three chapters now. That means Paul is increasing, not decreasing, in his reminder of the second coming of Jesus Christ. As Paul's writing to the end of 1 Thessalonians, he's getting more and more and more excited about the coming of Christ for his church. And you can imagine that Paul would be excited because here he is in Corinth, lonely and isolated, and he's hearing great news of what's going on in Thessalonica, but he knows the persecution that they face. And so Paul was pressing, Lord, come for your church now. Get us now. That should be our cry, but it also should be our cry, Lord, cause your love to abound and increase in us now. Given what Paul has described in the passage, this event that Paul highlights as the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints is the same event 
that was passionately read for us at the beginning of the service this morning. This 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through the end of the chapter, where Paul builds up to this grand crescendo. Given what Paul has already said, and what we see here in verse 12 or 13 of chapter 3, we recognize that Paul is looking for tomorrow. He's looking for the rapture of the church. Beloved, this is the next eschatological event. And it ties in with where I started this morning. Let us not be sensational headline chasers. We don't need to be. We don't need to be those who sensationalize Christianity. Let us be those who diligently live out Christ and let the timing be with the Lord. If you are so busy allowing the Spirit of God to love through you, then you will yearn for the day that Christ raptures his church. And you will pray that it is this moment. But you will also be one ready if it's not. And it won't crush your theology. It won't destroy your faith in Christ. It won't cause you to deconstruct because you simply understand in humble submission you're not in control. You're not in control. Christ will come with all of his saints. This idea of will come with all of his saints is likely a reference to that who's going to be at that Bema seat. Those who have passed on before and those who are yet alive. There's those who argue, and I could argue this way, but I'm, I don't lean this way. I don't think Paul's thought right now is this way. It will be in the next chapter. But I think Paul in chapter 3 is focusing on the Bema seat. And in chapter 4, he's focusing on what's going to happen when the dead in Christ rise and the glorified bodies and are glorified if you're left, left alive. And I say are because I'm praying that it's now. That our glorified bodies, that our bodies will meet our glorified bodies with Christ and those who have passed on before us. This, this is what Paul focusing, is focusing on in chapter 4. But in chapter 3, I believe when he says that the coming of the Lord Jesus with all of his saints, he's, he's looking to that Bema seat. Christ didn't leave any behind. All are there. And at the Bema seat, Christ will purify for himself a bride who is the church, blameless, holy, without spot or wrinkle, Ephesians chapter 5 says. Beloved, that's you and I. The church and all of her warts and wrinkles, purified and made holy and beautiful by our groom's men. Paul closes this first section of the letter by asking the Lord to completely finish what he started. To not leave anything out. And that is what he means by establish. 
says, so that he may completely finish your hearts in blamelessness and holiness before our God and Father. Establish to complete what he started. Go back to chapter 1, verse 5. Because this is how Paul starts this first section. He says this. Chapter 1, verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you from Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us, or concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now Paul says, Lord, finish what was started in Thessalonica. And Paul's prayer is that the Thessalonians would be easy for the Lord to complete that work. Beloved, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 should move us all to tears. It should move us all to the clear, definitive reality of what we have to look forward to. And when we live life in this sin-stained world, let us look for longingly a day when we're united with Christ as his bride. And let us do so as those who are faithful in practicing blamelessness and holiness abounding and increasing in our love. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you and we exalt you because we know that at the conclusion of this life, which we pray will be in the rapture of the church, that we will be brought up to meet you in the air. We pray that you would give us understanding hearts of how we are to submit to the Spirit of God and abound and increase in our love for one another and allow us to practice that in the moments to follow. Lord, we pray earnestly and diligently, come, come for your church. Come take your church from this wicked, sin-stained world in the rapture that we may be with our Savior forever. Lord, if you will tarry, may we celebrate your patience, waiting for the last to come to know you as Savior. May collectively we exalt your name in the pursuit of blamelessness and holiness before you. Lord, as we lift our voices in song now, I ask that you would give us voices that unite in unison in love for one another and in love for you that's demonstrated boldly and clearly in these next few moments. We love you. We thank you for all of these things. And again, it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.